Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin's Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin is sponsoring legislation that would give the Federal Commerce Department new powers to regulate and ban social media platforms and apps like TikTok, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Baldwin joins a bipartisan group of U.S. senators sponsoring the bill, which is the latest proposal focusing on what lawmakers are describing as a mounting security threat by, quote, technology from foreign adversaries. TikTok has become the target of intense scrutiny due to possible national security risks if used by the Chinese government to influence American (coughs) users or collect data from the millions of devices with the app. In a statement, Baldwin said that she sponsored the bill to protect Americans' data and that the app can pose a threat to our national security. Baldwin joins U.S. Republican Representative Mike Gallagher, also of Wisconsin, in the fight against the social media app. Gallagher has been a vocal critic of the app for months, saying it's part of a plot by the Chinese Community Party to undermine American leadership. A group of business owners, tourism officials, former elected officials, and union leaders have organized together to support state funding for improvements to American Family Insurance Stadium, the home to the Milwaukee Brewers. The purpose of the group is to support Governor Tony Evers' proposal to spend $290 million of state funds as part of an overall fix-up of the stadium with an estimated total cost of around $450 million. The Associated Press reports that the group is led by Michael Grieb, the former chair of the state Republican Party. Grieb was the attorney for the Brewers when the terms of the lease were initially negotiated back in 1995. The group, which calls itself the Home Crew Coalition, has issued a statement saying it supported, supports excuse me, finding a bipartisan solution to keeping the brew crew in Wisconsin and aims to raise awareness about the important economic benefits the ballpark provides to the state. Tomorrow's weather aside, spring is just around the corner. With that in mind, Dane County Parks Director Jolene Stinson is advising county park users that some parks may be temporarily closed during the next several weeks. The warmer weather brings out ground frost, making trails, dog parks, and grassy areas wet, soft, muddy, and easily damaged. Stinson says that visitors to the county parks and trails are at an all-time high, But the spring thaw period combined with high use can have long-term impacts, especially on hiking trails. In addition, the prescribed fire season is upon us. As the snow disappears, Dane County Parks and other conservation organizations will begin conducting prescribed burns within parklands throughout the county. The Madison Common Council met for the second week in a row last night. In addition to unanimously, <coughs> pardon me, in addition to unanimously approving a measure to join a class action lawsuit against car manufacturers Kia and Hyundai, the council approved new rules to require owners of large commercial buildings to partake in a new energy savings program. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the program would require. <coughs> Pardon me, having all kinds of trouble tonight. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the program would require owners of large commercial buildings across the city to report their annual energy use and conduct building energy tune-ups every four years. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway says the program will help building owners increase the energy efficiency of their buildings, reduce their carbon footprint, and of course save some money along the way as well. 
Also at last night's meeting, the Common Council adopted legislation to encourage the downtown development of taller residential buildings and more affordable housing. The legislation will allow developers to add additional stories to new buildings if at least half of the added space will be for affordable housing. The additional stories must fall within downtown height limits that protect the view of the state capitol. (coughs) Pardon me as well. The downtown zoning code includes both a maximum building height and a maximum number of floors. Residential buildings with the same number of floors as a commercial building are usually lower and thus rarely reach the height limit. That will likely change with the adoption of the affordable housing floor bonus. Developers agreeing to the incentive must use at least half of the additional space for affordable housing and maintain that affordability for at least 30 years. After the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, Madison schools made the decision to remove police officers from their hallways. Now, the GOP-led legislature is debating a bill that would require schools that make frequent calls for police to hire school resources officers. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. The state's Assembly Committee on Education held an executive meeting today to discuss two new bills that, if passed, would require schools that make frequent calls to police to hire school resource officers, or SROs. The first bill, Assembly Bill 53, would mandate both public and private high schools in Wisconsin to collect data on how often students commit a crime on school property and how often those crimes are reported to law enforcement. Republican Representative Joel Kitchens of Sturgeon Bay, who chairs the Education Committee, says that the goal of this bill is greater transparency. The purpose of this data is for the parents in the school districts to know what's going on. That's where the transparency is. It's not for us as policymakers necessarily. Now, if something come, comes up that we need to change our policy, sure, but that's not the purpose. Of- but Representative Deb Andraka, a Democrat from Whitefish Bay, says that the proposal's unnecessary and would create an unnecessary burden for schools. If I want to know what's going on in my school district, I can go to a school board meeting. I can reach out to parents. When there's incidents in my school district, I get a text, I get a phone call, and if I have a question, I can reach out to the principal. There's so many ways that I can find out what's going on in my school. A related bill, Assembly Bill 69, would require schools to employ a school resource officer, or SRO, if the school meets a certain threshold of incidents per semester. Under the proposal, schools would need to hire an SRO if there are 100 or more incidents of disorderly conduct or other crimes in one semester, and if at least a quarter of those incidents result in arrest. Proponents of the bill stayed quiet in today's meeting, but Republican Representative Nick Redinger of McQuanago, who helped write the bill, says the bill is necessary to create a safe learning environment for students. Redinger specifically pointed to the Wauwatosa School District, which has seen a number of fights on school grounds this school year. CBS 58 reports that currently four police officers are stationed as SROs in Wauwatosa schools. Several groups have registered against the bill, including the ACLU of Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Public School District, the Wisconsin School Social Workers Association, and Disability Rights Wisconsin. Joanne Youngke, with Disability Rights Wisconsin, says that they are against the bill because students with disabilities are often disproportionately targeted by school resource officers. There, there you activate the school-to-prison pipeline for students with disabilities in a way that far exceeds the 
already overwhelming disparities that students with disabilities get referred to law enforcement more often. Wisconsin Watch reports that before the pandemic, Wisconsin referred students to police twice as often as schools nationwide, with only three states reporting higher rates of referral. That referral rate jumps even higher for students with disabilities, with 20 out of every 1,000 students with disabilities being referred to police in the 2017-2018 school year. Only one group, the Milwaukee Police Association, has registered in support. Under the bill, legislators propose that the State Department of Public Instruction would cover part of the cost for hiring an SRO with federal pandemic relief funding. But a fiscal report from the State Department of Administration says that those federal funds can only be used for limited purposes and that funding SROs would not be allowed by the federal government. Representative Andraka, who brought with her to the meeting a large poster of the fiscal report, says that without funding, all the costs related to hiring SROs would fall on districts that are already strained. Andraka says that she would rather see the state help to fund student support services. If we vote down this specific bill, there's lots of things we can get behind that have been recommended that are data-driven, that the Office of DOJ wants to move forward. And I would like to see us do that. These bills come about three years after the Madison Metropolitan School District voted to remove SROs from their schools when Black Lives Matter protests put increased scrutiny on police officers in the community and in schools. The removal saw heated debate, particularly from those looking to remove SROs from schools. Current mayoral challenger Gloria Reyes, who was president of the school board at the time, originally wanted to keep the SROs, but switched positions shortly after public demonstrations outside her home. At the time, Madison Teachers, Inc., the union representing Madison teachers and school district employees, also originally backed the inclusion of SROs in school, but later backed their removal. That came with a caveat, however, of increased student support in Madison high schools, a move which never materialized. In 2020, MMSD released a report that showed major disparities in who SROs were interacting with. According to NBC15, SROs had 84 interactions with students in the 2019-2020 school year. 51 of those students were black or African American. Additionally, black students made up 65% of arrests on school grounds and 82% of citations. Current MMSD board member Savian Castro says that he stands with his vote to remove SROs in 2020. He says that despite some of the bill's authors pointing to high-profile incidents at Madison East High School in recent years, he still believes that removing the SROs created a safer, more inclusive environment in Madison schools. We've had a great school year at East, and I'd say it's unfortunate they have taken those incidents out of context and sensationalize them and use them for their own political agenda, which I think is far away from what is best for students. Castro adds that while he doesn't have exact numbers on the number of police interactions in Madison schools, he doesn't believe the bills would affect MMSD. The two bills passed the Education Committee today and now head to the full assembly. Companion bills in the state Senate have not yet passed. If passed by both chambers, the bills would head to Governor Evers for his approval or veto. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. In recent years, organizations tracking the financial and emotional stress of unpaid family caregivers 
have issued reports that measure the economic value of this type of care. The latest findings are out of Wisconsin, and they show a rise in the amount and value of uncompensated care. Mike Mullen is with the Wisconsin News Connection. The economic value of uncompensated family caregiving in Wisconsin has increased by more than $2 billion. That's according to the latest report that estimates how many hours family members are putting in without a lot of support. AARP Wisconsin says the state's more than half a million family caregivers provided an estimated 540 million hours of unpaid care in 2021, worth roughly $9 billion. That compares to 490 million hours, worth just under $7 billion in the group's 2019 report. AARP Wisconsin State Director Martha Cranley says placing a price tag on this care is important because of the financial pressure these folks often encounter. We know about three-quarters of people who are family caregivers are actually also in the workforce. So they're either cutting back on their hours or they're taking unpaid time. So that generally puts people in more of a financial risk. She adds they're out-of-pocket expenses, too. The group is renewing calls for policy actions, including a special tax credit for unpaid family caregivers and expanding the scope of paid leave opportunities. Democratic Governor Tony Evers has those ideas in his proposed budget, but Republicans who control the legislature haven't been too receptive to the spending plan. To the public, Cranley says it might be expected that a person would provide care to an aging family member without asking for much in return. But she says with these numbers trending higher, there are concerns that more individuals could end up in nursing homes or have extended hospital stays. So imagine that all of those folks had to go into a health care system that's already really struggling. You know, our healthcare workforce is undercompensated and there's not enough of them already. The state of Wisconsin does offer information about family caregiver support programs. Local specialists can guide caregivers on how to access training, financial planning, and respite services, along with other resources. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. I'm Robert McClure here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the 6 p.m. local news. What could a small stalagmite from a Wisconsin cave tell us about climate change? It turns out a lot. A new article published this month in the journal Nature Geoscience focuses in on a mineral deposit deep in the Cave of the Mounds in western Dane County. And that stalagmite? It unlocks a discovery about climate change tens of thousands of years ago. And that discovery could be timely to the climate change crisis today. Earlier this week, WORT News Director um, sat down with Dr. Cameron uh, Shali Pittman sat down with Dr. Cameron Batchelor, who authored the study while completing her Ph.D. at UW-Madison. So let's dive in. Why is a cave a good source for studying ancient climates? Why not, say, any other rock around us? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And caves are a great source for studying ancient climate because they're located underground. So terrestrial records, and what I mean by that are records from the land that are recording climate change, are actually relatively rare 
And that's because we have erosion and erosion is going to erase a lot of those rocks and records away. So for example, in Wisconsin, there used to be a really giant ice sheet, the Laurentide ice sheet. And this covered most of Northern North America, as well as most of Wisconsin during the last glacial period. And ice sheets, you can think of them as bulldozers. They're very destructive. As they advance, they scrape away sediment. So we have rocks on land that are constantly reporting climate, but whether they're preserved and are immune to these erosional processes is another story. So that's where caves come in. Because they're located underground, they're immune to these erosion processes. And as a result, the stalagmites inside actually can record relatively continuous records of past climate. And even better, stalagmites are forming from water that's dripping inside the cave. And this water, which we call drip water, is derived from meteoric precipitation. Um, therefore, stalagmites are forming from precipitation and it's locking in the isotopes from that precipitation, which in turn can tell us about past temperatures and also where we are getting our precipitation from. So they're really important records for those reasons. So how can an oxygen isotope um, tell us about past warming events? Yeah, so there are two different types of isotopes uh, for oxygen. There's oxygen 16 and oxygen 18. The only difference is that oxygen 18 is going to have two extra neutrons, so it's going to be a little bit heavier than oxygen 16. And the ratio between the two in precipitation is going to tell us about past temperature and also about where we're getting our rainfall from. So, for example, the Gulf of Mexico um, in the south is one of the um, prominent sources of precipitation in Wisconsin today, as well as the Arctic in the north. And these two air masses have very different oxygen isotope signatures. The Gulf of Mexico has a much higher oxygen isotope signature than the Arctic air mass. So if we look at oxygen isotopes in cave records and they're more negative um, in the past, then we know we're actually getting more precip from the Arctic air mass. So it's a way to fingerprint where you're getting your precipitation from and also temperature. So depending on how warm or how cold it is, you're going to have more negative and positive oxygen isotope ratios. So the findings from your study, basically you found from analyzing the stalagmite that what is now southern Wisconsin experienced some big temperature swings long, long ago. Can you tell us how long ago we're talking and how big of temperature swings? Yeah, so the time period the sample grew was during the last glacial period. And so what I mean by that, for about the last million years, Earth has oscillated between these glacial and interglacial cycles, um, roughly every 100,000 years. And this has to do with our rotation around the sun. And so today we're in a relatively warm interglacial cycle. But 100,000 years ago, it was much colder. Um, it was a glacial period from about 100,000 to 14,000 years ago. So the sample is growing during the last glacial period. And during this time, there is a giant ice sheet over northern North America. And ice sheets can cause climate to be very sensitive. And this is because they introduce these different processes, which we call feedbacks into the climate system. And so we knew during the last glacial period, Greenland actually underwent these really abrupt warmings. Several of these warmings happened within the last glacial period, and they lasted for about a decade. So um, we know this 
happen in Greenland because the Greenland ice core is very well studied and the chronology is very precise because you can count layers within the ice core. So this is when our study comes in. We had the Stiliothem growing during the last glacial period approximately 70,000 to 40,000 years ago. And we were able to resolve these abrupt temperature swings happening during the same time window as they were happening in Greenland. And these warmings were 10 degrees Celsius, which is 18 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can, if we pretend that we were alive 70,000 to 40,000 years ago, this would be equivalent to one decade of your life being 40 degrees Fahrenheit throughout the year on average. So today, for example, it's about 50 degrees Fahrenheit on average in Wisconsin. But then the next decade, it's almost 70 degrees Fahrenheit on average. So we're getting those almost 20 degrees Fahrenheit on average within a decade warmings. And so these are pretty substantial events that are occurring in Wisconsin. That is incredible. And you said that these warmings long, long ago are happening within a decade? Yeah. So um, the great thing about ice cores is they have these very laminated annual layers and people can go in and count. And so in Greenland, it's very well established that these warmings were happening within 10 years because they could count the layers that these isotope excursions were happening. And so with our Spiliothem, um, this study is important because we were also able to image these annual layers within the Spiliothem. And we saw these excursions in our record and we counted the layers across them. And so we can see that within a 10-year period, temperature on average throughout the year is increasing by 10 degrees Celsius. So um, that is how we were able to determine the rate of change within I've been speaking with Dr. Cameron Batchelor. She's author of a new study that analyzed a stalagmite from within the Cave of the Mounds for clues about climate change tens of thousands of years ago. After completing her PhD, Dr. Batchelor is now at work analyzing other caves as a postdoctoral fellow at the National Science Foundation at MIT. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, the uh, details of tomorrow's snowstorm are becoming at, at least a slightly clearer now that the time window to the event has shortened up so much, uh, enough so that uh, all the high-resolution computer models could have a crack at it. Uh, even so, I've certainly seen better unanimity at 24 hours lead time. Indeed, there's still some dissension between the models about just uh, how much the low-level circulation actually closes off and uh, just where it tracks to our south. Uh, but since Monday morning, anyway, when I gave the forecast, a few things have become clearer. Uh, precipitation uh, type with this storm will certainly be snow, with any chances of uh, mixed precipitation holding pretty well south of us in Illinois. Generally speaking, the models have also uh, shortened up the window of, for active precipitation, with all of the models now kind of shutting down the snow by, well, mid-morning on Friday at the latest, if not earlier. Uh, onset has also moved a little earlier, up to about uh, mid or late afternoon tomorrow, but all of the models show a period at the front end of this storm during which the dry air up in the second mile above ground level struggles to become saturated for a while, so that potential delay is still playing a little bit of havoc with onset time. 
We should have a window uh, during the overnight period tomorrow night, uh, perhaps a few hours or longer, during which there's likely to be pretty vigorous precipitation rates. Uh, so that augurs uh, for some decent totals coming down. Uh, but the temperatures in the air column above us, uh, at least as portrayed on uh, most of the prognostic soundings from the models, don't indicate a particularly deep layer in which uh, those fluffy, big dendritic ice crystals, which stack up so nicely, are likely to form. So we may not end up getting uh, quite as much on the ground as we might otherwise expect. So uh, with grainier snow, perhaps, uh, falling for a slightly shortened period of time into uh, what is also going to be a relatively warm environment down here at ground level, up around 30 degrees, 31, something like that, uh, I'm definitely leaning towards the lower end of the model output as far as the snow totals are concerned, probably somewhere in the uh, 3 to 4 inch range. And impacts should also be uh, mitigated, I think, by the fact that this is going to be happening mostly uh, in the evening and overnight period when uh, cars are off the road. So I'm not expecting the uh, plow trucks to have too much trouble uh, taking care of it effectively. Uh, I would normally invite you at this point to have a look at the storm coming together out to our southwest, as I often do uh, on the water vapor image of North America that's on the WORT weather webpage. But as it happens, the College of DuPage, which is the entity which provides us with most of the satellite data, has been upgrading their server over the past day or so. Uh, so the images currently up there have some big gaps in them. So if you have been looking today at some of the satellite imagery and not seeing the image matching reality very much, that's what's going on. But that should be solved uh, within the next day or two. Uh, anyway, we're likely to see passing flurries then behind the uh, system snows on Friday during the day as the upper air trough behind the storm passes over. Uh, then a partly sunny day on Saturday before a second system on a more uh, Alberta Clipper-type path from the northwest brings us a second round of snow on Sunday. Uh, this time around, it'll be largely from warm air being lifted uh, relatively high up in the atmosphere out ahead of the circulation, which is going to be passing eventually to our north during the overnight into Monday. So this will be a much less vigorous snow, uh, but uh, over a fairly long period of time, so it could add another inch or two to whatever comes down tomorrow night. Uh, we'll stay cool then out through about Tuesday, but it looks like we'll warm again later in the week, in the way the longer-range maps are looking at the moment anyway. But back to the details for tonight, the sky should continue to thicken a bit with temperatures dropping to the low 30s on uh, what will be steadily steady east winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour. And the skies will remain gray through tomorrow. They'll darken up as we get into the afternoon hours. Temperatures will reach the mid-30s on uh, what will be slowly strengthening easterly winds, coming up to about uh, 12 to 20 miles per hour by late in the afternoon. They'll be sort of gusty in the evening as well. Light snow is likely to start up after about uh, 3 or 4 p.m., uh, possibly uh, in intermittent fashion to begin with, uh, but then increase in intensity as we go through the evening with the highest snow rates looking to be between about 9 p.m. and midnight or shortly after. Uh, three or four inches could stack up during that time, and uh, the, the snow will be blown around quite a bit, perhaps even drift some on uh, northeasterly winds up at uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour. Those winds will veer a little more northerly and come down a little bit towards morning, and temperatures will hold around 30 through the overnight. Uh, Friday, we should see some lifting and perhaps some breaking of the cloud deck, but uh, flurries will stay possible certainly through the morning and perhaps into the afternoon. Uh, temperatures will hold in the low 30s on lighter north-northeasterly winds coming down to about uh, 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop to about 20 during the overnight period with fresh snow cover uh, under partly cloudy skies. 
And Saturday, I think the temperatures can respond to about the low 30s or so, at least given some sun that day and a lengthening photo period, even though we'll have snow on the ground reflecting the sunlight back. Uh, we'll have uh, continued east and, uh, northeast to east winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour on Saturday. It'll put a little chill into the air, a little additional bite. Uh, we'll recloud then as we go overnight, and light snow will again break out in uh, probably the evening hours and continue then on and off into Sunday with another oh, inch or so coming down. Temperatures will hold in the upper 20s and recover into the mid-30s on Sunday. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 39 degrees. The dew point temperature is 15. Uh, winds are out of the east at 13 miles per hour. We've uh, overcast up at about 10,000 feet currently, and the barometer's been falling fairly steadily. It's down at 30.40 inches of mercury just now. As the 2023 race for mayor enters its last month, we go now to the heated campaign of 1963. Stu Levitan has the breaking news from 60 years ago on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, Race for Mayor, 1963. Conservative businessman Henry Reynolds was elected mayor in 1961 over Bob Knuckles, the top aide to the outgoing liberal mayor Ivan Nestigan. In 1963, Reynolds is challenged by Nestigan's most significant citizen appointee, Eastside attorney and land developer Albert McGinnis, chair of the city's Urban Renewal Agency, the Madison Redevelopment Authority, since its creation in 1958. Reynolds campaigns on how he's fulfilled his campaign promises. He's already killed the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Auditorium at Law Park, and he's made real progress on a new downtown library, parking ramps, and the Monona Causeway. And he's so frugal that he never even hired the one administrative assistant he could have. And he's got big plans to expand the municipal airport and for the city to buy wetlands in the Cherokee Marsh for conservation and recreation. McGinnis, making his first bid for elective office, hits Reynolds for the city's growing debt and his very rocky relations with the Common Council. He says the mayor is moving too fast on the Monona Causeway and too slow on annexations. The differences are real, but the campaign is relatively genteel, until McGinnis tops Reynolds by 731 votes in the March 5th primary. That's when Reynolds goes on the attack. McGinnis should have known urban renewal would become a campaign issue, especially the MRA's failure to provide affordable replacement housing for residents whose homes the MRA started tearing down in the Greenbush in January 1962. A week after the primary, it becomes that issue, as Reynolds levels a blistering attack on McGinnis, which confirms the widespread public criticism of the MRA. Reynolds rightly attacks an MRA report from 1959, which stated there was adequate and affordable replacement housing. The report, Reynolds says, quote, was so fantastically inaccurate that anyone who had done a fair job of research would know immediately that it did not reflect the Madison situation. Although the report was written by city staff, Reynolds holds citizen member McGinnis 
personally responsible. A great deal of needless human suffering arose out of the hasty and ill-planned removal of people from the Triangle Renewal Project and reflects the bungling of my opponent, Reynolds says. Due to the speed with which the authority went ahead, the problem grew worse, he adds. MRA member Alder Harold Babe Rohr, vital to Reynolds' 1961 election, but now backing McGinnis, blasts the comments as, quote, uncalled for and irresponsible. If he's got something to say, he should come here and say it. Voters have their say on Election Day, April 2nd. McGinnis carries the east and south sides, but Reynolds' support in the well-heeled Vilas, University Heights, and Nakoma neighborhoods carries him to a 1,300-vote victory, about half his 1961 margin. Reynolds gets more good news that night, as voters approve five bond issues, four bonds worth $7 million, for the University Avenue expansion, storm sewers, airport improvements, and an addition to the vocational school, pass overwhelmingly. The million-dollar bond to start construction of the Monona Causeway carries by a much closer margin. Days later, McGinnis resigns from the MRA, just one week before his five-year term expires. He does not go quietly. As a result of your own failure to make yourself aware of and be informed of the MRA's activities, he writes Reynolds, you have placed the Redevelopment Authority in an apparent emergency situation. McGinnis suggests that Reynolds start reading the MRA reports and, quote, avoid pushing the panic button or otherwise smear a project carried on as a mandate of the people with council approval by non-paid citizen members. Alder Rohr, whom the NAACP and Unitarians had tried to have removed from the MRA in 1961 due to his opposition to fair housing, also resigns, blasting Reynolds for playing, quote, campaign politics with the authority. Reynolds blunts any political damage, however, with his appointment of the widely respected, just-retired school superintendent Philip Falk, who was quickly elected chair. But although Reynolds' attack on the MRA ends with the campaign, its impact lingers and helps validate opposition to urban renewal. That opposition grows big enough it gets a referendum on the 1964 ballot to abolish the Redevelopment Authority and end urban renewal. So exactly one year after attacking the MRA to win re-election, Reynolds has to campaign extensively to save it. His rescue effort is successful. Barely. With 36,665 votes cast in April 1964, the Madison Redevelopment Authority and Urban Renewal survive by 367 votes. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6, and thanks especially to those of you who pledged to keep this news show independent from commercial influence. Yay, thank you very much. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporters were was Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our feature contributor, Stu Levitan. Thanks to our fundraisers also this evening, Jay Dicey Ramos and Abigail Levins. They did a bang-up job. Engineering this evening is Chuck Kademan. Nate Wegehout produced the newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. 
And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you again to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You truly do make a difference and you truly do make it happen. Up next is Query. Have a good night. W-O-R-T 89.